not only is it a, is it a cool season just because Easter's coming around the corner and there's just, I feel like, you know, church around this time is just kind of an anticipation building, but it just also seems that God's really moving. And, and sometimes we can focus just on money, but this is also a great way to contribute and take, and, uh, take ownership and take part in what God is doing. So we, we love to give here. We celebrate that. And so, uh, so that's what that's all about. But hey, we're continuing this, this series called the Upside Down Way of Jesus. And uh, I just want to jump right in. If you have a Bible, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 20. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses, verses 25 through 28, we see Jesus giving a response. And, and when I read this, I think Jesus is a little mad. I think Jesus is a little, little upset. I think he's a little frustrated. But in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, uh, Jesus says this. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I know I've heard this, this scripture been, been preached on. I've heard people talk about this or, or talk about this theme that Jesus kind of hits on in multiple places. And sometimes we get the picture or get the idea that material success in any form is somehow mutually exclusive to following Jesus Christ. That, that you cannot be successful in this life if you're following Jesus and, and vice versa. And I, I don't want to, I want to step away from that line of thinking. There are, Many, many examples in the Bible of successful people who are following God. There are many, many examples of successful people who weren't following God. So it's not a one-to-one type of comparison. It's not an automatic thing that if you're following Jesus Christ, if you're following God, that you can't be successful. So I want to step away from that. But what I would like to focus on this morning is the motivation that comes in with that. If success is driven about overcoming people, about climbing that ladder, about pushing people down, about lording authority over them, then I think we have a problem. And it's a matter of our mindset. It's a matter of our motivation. It's a matter of whether or not we're trying to find value, find, find, find worth in, in that pursuit of something. So there's my little disclaimer before we get going here. There's the little thing I wanted to, wanted to clear up. But last week, Paul presented us with a, with a word picture, with, with kind of a comparison A fan versus a follower. And I would love to sit on that a little bit more this morning, and and I think we'll sit on that throughout the series. The difference between a fan and a follower. The things that Jesus says and does often draw people to him. He turns water into wine. He takes a small boy's lunch and multiplies it to thousands to feed hungry people. This is a guy that you'd want to be around. It it makes perfect sense that, that crowds were attracted to Jesus. But then at the same time, Jesus Jesus would often say and do things to push people away. Maybe he would go into seclusion or or maybe he would say something that was so challenging, so radical, that people just up and left. And so we kind of have this this contradiction. We see that in the scripture that was just read where Jesus attracts people but also pushes people away. Now, it's very easy to be a Colts fan. You know, I, I think here in central Indiana, we have a lot of, a lot of Colts fans. We have, we have a lot of people who are really into the Colts. We, we love to watch them on Sunday, Sunday afternoons when they're on and love to cheer them. And I would imagine that there are a lot of Colts fans who know Peyton Manning. But I don't think that there's a lot of Colts fans who knew the pain, the suffering, the disappointment, the heartache of Jeff George. 
Does anyone remember Jeff George? A first-round draft pick coming out of Illinois who was an absolute bust. As much as Peyton Manning's been a success as a first-round pick, Jeff George was a complete and total bust. It was not popular to be a Colts fan during that time. It was not a good thing to be a Colts fan. You were looked down upon. You were shunned by society. People threw things at you. It was, it was, it was rough. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think a lot of the Colts fans today are true followers of the Colts. I don't think they were really through all that with, with them in the Jeff George years. When, when uh, the Super Bowl ended, the teams flew home from Miami. The, the Saints went back to New Orleans, and there was this huge parade, and it just kind of kept going and kept going. It went all into Mardi Gras, and we would turn on the TV, and we would see this parade, and, and, and we would just kind of, uh, I don't want to watch this anymore. We'd turn it off, or we would, we would just, it would, just, it would hurt. When the plane came back from Miami to Indianapolis International Airport, the Colts got off the plane, and they were greeted by some fans. Maybe you could say they were followers. A whole 11 of them. 11 people showed up to greet the Colts when they came home. 11 people. Now, I consider myself a fan of Colts, but I'm not that devoted that the the Monday or Tuesday or whenever it was after the Super Bowl that I was going to go and sit there in Indianapolis International Airport and watch the Colts get off the plane from a distance. I'm just not that committed. Because being a fan doesn't really take that much commitment. Last week, Paul talked about Facebook and how you can become fans of things on Facebook. And if you have a lot of friends, friends on Facebook that are fans of things, they kind of clutter up your news feed. They're on the homepage. You have all this stuff that so-and-so's a fan of texting and so-and-so's a fan of, of not doing their homework or whatever. My, my personal favorite, and I'm not a fan of this, but I had to laugh out loud when I saw this, is that someone wanted me to be a fan of bacon. Like bacon had their own, had its own fan page. And I like bacon, but I didn't want to be a fan of it on Facebook. And so all these fan pages are suddenly filling up your homepage and, and and there's really no, there's really no ask there. They're not asking you to really do anything. They're just asking you to click on something and you become a fan and the fan page gets bigger. But there's no real commitment there. A fan is, is a very low commitment thing. To be a follower, that's, that's a high commitment thing. That's, that's getting there and greeting your team when they're losers off the airplane. That's, that's struggling through something. That's buying in. That's willing to give. That's willing to commit in a way that asks a lot. And Jesus is asking us to be followers and not just fans. See, Jesus isn't interested in fans. And if you think about it, that's kind of odd. It's kind of odd that Jesus would not be interested in fans. You would think that if you were going to become a follower, you would first have to be a fan. Like it's just kind of a natural progression. Now Jesus has these crowds and crowds of people who are on, who are listening to every single word, who are anticipating his every move. And Jesus would often leave these people. He would go away to seclusion. Or he would say things that he knew would drive them away. And if I was in that position, I would look at these crowds and I'd say, we have potential here. If I'm trying to create a movement, if I'm really trying to do something profound, different, and new, then I need people who are going to commit. And they have to start somewhere. Whereas Jesus looked at it and said, here it is. You're either with me or you're not. And if you're not with me, I'm really sad about that. But you know, you know how to leave and you're welcome to leave. Because Jesus looked at it and saw people's hearts and saw people's potential as individuals, not just the masses. That Jesus was not interested in these, these huge, huge groups. Last week, Paul talked about uh, something that was very controversial. That Jesus said something that was, that was pretty radical. Jesus looked out at people and said, if you really want to be a follower of me, you have to hate your family. You have to hate your family. Now, 
As much as that might excite some of us, that doesn't mean we can be mean to our sister or our in-laws or anything like that. That doesn't mean that we can, we can make jokes bound behind their back. What that means is that we have to be willing to disassociate ourselves with their values so much that it comes across as hate. That we have to prioritize our lives in a way where Jesus is, is, is first and foremost. And that can be very, very difficult. Because Jesus is always saying these types of things. These kind of counterintuitive, these kind of odd sayings that don't really make sense, that don't really, aren't really a good idea if you're trying to start a movement. But Jesus constantly says this and constantly pushes people away as he invites some people in. So this morning we're looking at this odd saying. If you want to be great, you have to be a slave. If you want to be first, you have to be a servant. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be first, you have to be last, which is, which is odd, which, is, which doesn't make a lot of sense. When I think about first being last, I think about waiting in lines. I think about how, how we often wait in lines. and how, When we're waiting in line, we so, we so want to get ahead. We want to bypass people in front of us. Jesus in the Scripture kind of paints this picture of how things are and how they should be. He, he shows us that when people in power, their, their default is to lord that power over people, is to, to control, is to remind them of who's in charge, is to keep people down. So if we're thinking about lines, or we're thinking about people at the front holding the people in the back down, I think about my elementary school years. In elementary school, lines are pretty common. And I think from a very early age, they use lines to, to create order, to, to keep, people in, keep people together so you don't lose anybody, just to kind of prevent the chaos. But I was cursed by my last name. Now, I'm not only cursed by my last name that it rhymes with candy, and the kids like to tease you about that when, you, when you're a kid my size, or that, that weird girl named Mandy liked to remind me all the time that if we got married, her name would be Mandy Tandy, and, or anything like that. Ah, yeah. True story. She's, she was weird. But, uh, <laughs> but that my last name began with the letter T. And when you're in elementary school, you don't just line up in lines. You line up in lines based on alphabetical order. You know, they're trying to teach the alphabet, integrate that into your, into your life. So for recess, I was at the back of the line. To go home at the end of the day, I was at the back of the line. To go to the bathroom, back of the line. To go to lunch, I was at the back of the line. Everything I did in elementary school when we lined up, I was always at the back of the line. I envied those kids with the last name Andrew or Aaron's, the double A. They're always at the front. And I hated my last name for that until that cool teacher in fourth grade said, well, we're going to line up in reverse alphabetical order. And suddenly I'm at the front of the line for everything. And I think about how first is last, how that's, that's appealing. How suddenly if we're at the end, we're, we're towards the front. Because we spend a lot of time in lines. Maybe literally, maybe when we go out to eat, we have the family with us, we put our name in, and it's a half hour wait, and we sit down, and we start looking around to see who's going to crack first. We look at those parents of those little kids and see who's going to flinch, who's going to realize that their kid's not going to be satisfied and they have to go to McDonald's right now because when they leave, I bump up a little bit in line. Or maybe you're sitting in traffic and there's a traffic jam and one lane's starting to move, so you, you cut over real, real quick in front of somebody and they tell you that you're number one and then all of a sudden you're sitting there and the line that you're in starts moving and you're just you're so frustrated. We're always in lines. Maybe it's, it's a symbolic line. Maybe it's the, the career ladder. Maybe you're looking at your boss and you're thinking that 
I should have their job, that I should really be ahead of them. And you start comparing yourself. You start thinking to yourself that you can somehow outdo them or you can work it so you get their job. We're always, we're always waiting in lines um, and trying to keep up with what's going on around us. You know, you hear the phrase, keeping up with the Joneses. Maybe your neighbor gets a new, a new car and you want that new car. Or whatever it is, we're, we're kind of ranking ourselves against other people and those around us. And I remember in, uh, in Little League, when, the, when, the, when you would bump up the new age group, you would have a draft. And so the coaches would get together and rank the kids, and they would draft them. And then at the end of the year, they would have an all-star team. And so you would, you would vote on these 12-year-olds on who was the best to be on the all-star team. And kind of ranking each other is kind of ingrained in us from a very early age. From immediately on, we're kind of conditioned to compare ourselves to other people. Even positive things like a report card. Maybe you've had had that friend, or maybe this is you who was so driven by academics, who was so good at everything that that first B was just devastating to them. And you just couldn't understand how they would be so driven or how they would be so devastated by the fact that they, they didn't get an A. We've, maybe you've heard the story, it's pretty well known, that Michael Jordan was cut from the middle school basketball team, that he didn't make the team. And that that was something that drove him to achieve. That's something that, that just haunted him, that he always wanted to prove those people wrong. That for some reason, it's in us to rank ourselves, to compare ourselves, to, to suddenly get ahead, to push other people down and cut people in line. Whatever that phrase or that thinking is, we're always trying to jump people. We're always trying to get ahead of them. It's never about how far we've come in the line. It's never about how far we've progressed. But it's always about how far we have to go or how many people are in front of us. Now, we might call this overcoming adversity, meeting goals. We might call this achieving something. But I think what happens is is we take that good motivation and focus on it so much that it kind of consumes our lives that we, we, kind, of, we kind of allow ourselves to be consumed with the idea of overcoming our peers. And so it becomes a point where not only do we want to overcome people, but we want to be the only people there. We want to be that unique place. We want to be the king of the hill. Lexus is coming out with a new, um, a new car, a new sports car, a new luxury car. And, um, and like a lot of companies that have a really, really special prototype car, they want to limit the number of cars that are available. And so they do what a lot of companies do. They raise up the price. So the price tag on this car is $400,000. So immediately, people are removed from, from buying that car. There are just a number of people who are no longer able to buy this car. Well, they say, well, we want it to even be more special. So they're going to limit the number that they make. So they limit the number they make so there's some scarcity there. Supplies down, demand goes up. But they say, that's not enough. We, we don't want to just make it, make it uh, unique or make it really, really pricey. But you have to apply to get this car. So you have the money. You have your name on one. You have one picked on out. You have to send in an application to Lexus. Because what Lexus is trying to do is create an experience where you would not have to face the horrible, horrible instance of you driving that car and you see someone else driving the exact same car. Because that would just be devastating. They don't want their car on the wrong roads. They don't want their cars in the multiple communities. They don't want or multiple cars in the same community. They want you to be completely unique in this. They want you to be special. All because you own a car. And somehow this is, this is okay. And I'm sure they'll sell however many cars they make. Somehow this, this fits. This makes sense. Yeah, I want to be unique. I want to be special. But why do we go through with this? 
Because when you, we play this ranking game, when we play this comparison game, there's, you're always coming up short. There's no way that you can ever fully meet the expectations you're laying out in front of yourself. It's impossible to achieve. Every time you get to the end of the line, the front of the line, you just discover there's more lines to jump into. It's, it's a horrible process. So why do we go through it? I think there's two reasons that we do this. I think the first is we believe there's some sort of payoff at the end that's worthwhile. And not only is that payoff, payoff worthwhile, but that payoff fulfills us. There's something missing in our lives, and, and that can fulfill us. I have, a, I have a group of friends from college, and, and once a year we get together, and we call it Man Weekend. And on Man Weekend, we go camping, okay? We go camping, and we, we cut our own firewood, we're outside, we're under the stars, we, we, we build big fires, we take large chunks of meat and put it over the fire, and we cook the meat, and we, we, we sit around, and we, we talk about our feelings. I mean, it's just a very, very manly, manly weekend. And in the first year we did this, we went to Cedar Point up in northern Ohio on Lake Erie. Cedar Point is a is an amusement park. It makes Kings Island look like the county fair. Like it is a really, really great amusement park. And so the day we were gonna go, we got there an hour before the gates were gonna open. So we're waiting in line at the front gates to get into the park. Gates open up, we take off sprinting. We run to the ride that we knew we had to ride at least once that day. We run to the top thrill dragster. And just like the name implies, it's inspired by the drag races. And so we get to this ride and we wait in line there. And we spend a little bit of time in the line and and all of a sudden we realize that we come along these friendly signs that remind you of just how long you're going to have to wait. They say we have an hour wait. And so we get in line and we snake through everything and we patiently wind our way through the concourse for this ride. And finally, we get up to the area where we get on the train, the cars, whatever we're calling them, and we get, get seated. And you, you're sitting in a, in, a, in, a, in a stop position right here. And they're starting to tell you what's going to happen. Because what's going to happen is you're going to go from zero to 100 mile an hour in like two seconds. It's like, it's like they shoot you off from this, this stop, and you go flying down this track, and then at a 90-degree angle, you shoot up in the air 400 feet, you corkscrew like five or six times, go across a little bit, and come flying back down. Like, it is just like the adrenaline rush of adrenaline rushes. So we're sitting there. They're telling us all this. We're locked in. Our heads are back because we don't want to die of whiplash. And we're, we're ready to go. And we're just so excited and so geared up. And all of a sudden, it shoots us off. We go flying down the track, up 90 degrees, 400 feet in the air, corkscrew around, and back down again. It was incredible. But it lasted 17 seconds. We waited probably two hours for this ride that lasted 17 seconds. But isn't that so often what, what is kind of at the end of these lines? Maybe that new job that we've been waiting on and been working towards really isn't all it's cracked up to be. All that extra responsibility really isn't worth it. Maybe that new car is, is suddenly sitting in your garage a lot more because you don't want to get it dirty or dinged up. Maybe you don't want to, you don't want to mess with that new thing that you get because really it's, it's not quite what you expected. It's not quite what you, what you wanted. The payoff wasn't what you had hoped for. I said the, the other thing that kind of keeps us in this lines is that we feel that we're not quite fulfilled. We want the payoff, but we're not quite fulfilled. I think that for any time you watch a commercial, any time you watch a commercial, there's a kind of a, an implicit message that your life 
isn't very good. That your life is missing something. And their product, their place, or whatever they're selling, or whatever they're trying to talk you into, can somehow fulfill that lack, that hole. Can kind of fill you up. And over the course of the day, whether it's TV, internet, billboards, whatever, we're exposed to about 3,000 different messages telling us that we don't have it together and that there's something out there that can give it to us. So 3,000 times a day, we're told we're not good enough. 3,000 times a day, we're told that our life is pretty, pretty pathetic. And if we would just buy, do, come to this, whatever it is, our life would be a lot better. And we buy into this. We believe that this is true. We believe that we can do this, that, that somehow our self-worth is tied into what, what, we can, what we can own or what we can do or what activities we can, we can spend, our time, spend our time with. But this line way of thinking, this belief that somehow there's a payoff at the end or this belief that that payoff will somehow fulfill us isn't really unique to today. The scripture we read early on was a response to a question. And the question I want, I want to look at is in, is in verse 20 through 25. So Matthew chapter 20, flip back over there or see it on the screen. We see the question that kind of sets Jesus off. Starting in verse 20, it says this. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. Verse 21. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Excuse me. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the ten brothers. So James and John are kind of pulled to Jesus by their mom. I think James and John believed they had been waiting in line for a while and were owed something. And as they were waiting in line, I think they became frustrated with how long this was taking. And so maybe they went home for dinner and they would tell their mom how Jesus just doesn't really get it. How there doesn't really seem to be this payoff. What's the point? Or maybe they thought, well, it seems like things are coming to an end. We're going back to Jerusalem. That can only mean one thing. Jesus is going to be king. That Jesus is going to take over. And I better get a big piece of the pie. I better be ahead of those other 11 guys that have been following Jesus around. I am owed something. I talk to students sometimes and they tell me about how they're struggling in a class, they're, they're failing a class, whatever it is. And I ask them, well, what's going on with that? And a lot of times the answer I get is that the teacher doesn't like me. The teacher doesn't like me, which I never buy. I don't think it's hardly ever true. But I think that, that they buy it. And I think that sometimes maybe their parents buy it. Or maybe they, they tell other people this. I think something similar is happening is they would go home and, and they would make excuses and they would tell mom all these things are so bad. James and John went home and told, told their mom how they're going to get overlooked. And all of a sudden, moms do what moms do. They take care of their kids. And so we see this picture where mom is kind of dragging James and John up to Jesus. I have this picture of James and John kind of being embarrassed, kind of knowing where this is headed, knowing that this is a bad idea, maybe looking down at their feet and kind of cringing as their mom asks this huge, huge question. And Jesus looks at him and says, you have no idea what you're asking. 
You have no idea what you're talking about. You can't even begin to understand how off you are. You can't begin to understand how off you are. You have no idea that the payoff you're really looking for, the payoff you're talking about, is that you will die. That you will be martyred. But it's going to be a while. That things are going to be tough. That the payoff you're talking about involves me going to a cross. Involves me suffering very publicly. Involves probably a lot of embarrassment. Involves me walking out of a tomb in, in a way that you really can't understand. And something that will be just as confusing as it is exciting. And that payoff will be that I'm going to leave. And I'm going to leave you in charge. And I'm going to trust you to do it. That's a pretty different payoff than what they were thinking. That's a pretty different payoff than what they were looking for. See, the difference between fans and followers is pretty simple. Fans, I think, wait in line. Fans are willing to wait in line because they believe the line ends somewhere good. Followers look at, look at the line and they don't get it. They don't understand why, we, why someone would wait in line for something that's already been freely given, something that's already, already been freely offered. Fans might come to church because they want to feel good. They want something, something positive in their life. And, and I hope that, that you leave with something positive, that there's some hope. But I hope that's not all you leave with. Fans might come to church because they feel that they're getting in a line that ends with heaven. And I hope that you do end up in heaven. I hope that you're following Jesus and that that means that you're saved and that you end up in heaven. But I hope that you would also realize that heaven is just the continued payoff that you can experience right now and not some sort of destination at the end. Fans might come to church because there's some sort of guilt wrapped up and they're trying to avoid that and they're trying to check something off of being a good person. That is really unfulfilling as well. Whereas a follower, look at the fact that that Jesus died and rose again, that Jesus walked out of the empty tomb, and when he did, all the pressure, all those expectations of living in a line have been removed. All of that hope of a payoff, that belief that there's some sort of fulfillment at the end, has been removed because all of that hope, all of that fulfillment has already been given. Jesus has already given us everything we need. And we don't need to wait in line anymore. We don't need to to buy into this thought that we have to overcome, that we have to climb the ladder, We don't need to buy into that lie anymore because Jesus has removed the line. He has given us everything we need. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we are so guilty. I am so guilty of of playing the comparison game, of believing that I can somehow achieve something, that I can somehow make it, that I can do something on my own accord that allows me to advance, to be better, to be somehow somehow closer to you. Lord, let us all realize that following you is not about getting in line. It's about it's about walking with you. It is about becoming someone who's oriented their whole life around what you're doing. So Lord, remove this this whole idea freest of the expectations and the pressures and allow us to live for you in a way that that is truly powerful in a way that that means something and lord as we look towards easter help us celebrate help us realize how incredible that day is 
and show us how you're making everything new. To your son's name.